Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. And particularly welcome back to the final part of our series, exploring what happens to identity during moments of great change and trauma. Over the course of the series, we've focused our lens on Central and Eastern Europe in the early part of the 20th century when borders were constantly shifting, on the collapse of empires and its legacy, the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, speaking to the artists and thinkers about the impact of this political and economic upheaval on expressions of artistic and cultural identity. And it was inevitable that this series would end with Brexit and contemporary European identity. This focus has driven Dash for the past few years. We shifted our artistic plans for the company after the EU referendum result in 2016, drawing our attention instead on what it means to be European. And this final episode is very much at the heart of the journey. Project Europa is a female-led theatre company making work by migrant artists in the UK. I spoke to its inspirational founder, director Maria Olberg, about how she decided to start the company and how her own work has been affected. How has this kind of political economic shift affected you as an artist and the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I suppose if I start in concrete terms, like you, I had some big conversations in those weeks just after the referendum. And one of those conversations was um, with Erica Wyman, who is the Deputy Artistic Director at the RSC. And it, it sort of made sense to us quite quickly that we looked at doing something that dealt with Europe and with European theatre makers and with European theatre practice uh, in all its wonderful variations and contradictions. So we decided that I would curate a season of work uh, at the RSC uh, about European theatre, yet to be decided exactly what that meant, and and started working on it in in about around 2016. And that season then evolved into being something that dealt with, you know, of course, Brexit was the thing that everyone was thinking about and was the starting point for the conversations. But really, you know, the topic of Europe and Europeans and European theatre and theatre practice is so much bigger than Brexit and much more, I think, rewarding when not seen through the prism of that one particular political um, issue. So we very quickly moved away from that being in any way sort of the topic of exploration. It got cancelled pretty swiftly after the first lockdown. And so I was left thinking, how do I salvage not just some of the work, although of course I was very attached to the to the individual pieces and the projects, but the thinking that had gone into to creating this season and to the relationships that I had developed uh, over the time of putting it all together and started, uh, you know, started trying to find a way to do that uh, over those first few months in this, that summer of last year. And then quickly realized that actually the best way to do that And this wasn't something that I'd ever considered doing before, but the best way to do that might be to start a company of my own. So that's what I did. So then I set up Project Europa and went on the very exciting journey of trying to figure out what I would really do and how I would really do it if I had the artistic license that running a company gives you, especially weirdly in the in the kind of vacuum of productivity that, that the pandemic was. So that's been my kind of, I suppose, biggest uh, post-Brexit journey. Uh, interestingly, has been a journey very much back to where I started, which was which was engaging with and making theatre from a perspective that isn't necessarily in the British tradition of being playwright-led that's very dominant in the UK. And the RSC just presumably, uh, it was a project that you'd conceived together and they couldn't, they couldn't realise it. In no form, there was no way that they could even kind of hold on to some of the ideas? 
No. <laughs> very short answer to that. You know, it was a difficult, complicated time and very, a lot of decisions had to happen very quickly in a short space of time in that April, May period when everything was chaos and nobody knew how long anything was going to last and, you know, what the implications of any decisions that anyone made in, in that period really were, you know. It, it's your baby, Project Europa. You've presumably got a lovely amazing team of enthusiastic people surrounding you but it's very much your vision can you track the way that you would potentially have shifted as a person through that journey of the company of of the work that you've been creating you know one of the things I've been thinking about a lot especially in the context of how strongly it felt last year in March not just for me I'm sure but for many other people how things were ending and how journeys that had been started couldn't continue and how much of a full stop the pandemic represented in so many different ways. You could say that the the, the journey of running Project Europa started 15 years ago when I saw a particular production or the first time I considered running an organization, which is way back. I mean, the biggest discovery, I think, for me was, and to anyone who runs a company, this is uh, very obvious, I think, but I had never considered it, having always been a freelancer. I had always considered the creative uh, work to happen in the rehearsal room and everything that happens outside the rehearsal room is basically just there to enable that bit of creativity to take place. Uh, And of course, now I realize how really creatively fulfilling all of those other things are. You know, asking yourself the big questions about what the work you want to, what is the work you want to make? How do you want to make it? Who do you want to make it with? What are those relationships like? How do you create them and support them and nourish them? So in some ways in the last 12 months or 18 months, that's been the biggest discovery Um, is that I can function and think like an artist and feel artistically fulfilled even when I'm not literally in the rehearsal room. (laughs) I completely agree and I have found particularly during COVID when we can't be in the rehearsal room and we can't be kind of physically making work actually the fact that you can derive satisfaction and pleasure and all sorts of interesting things sitting in your bedroom as I find myself now talking to you is, is is kind of extraordinary exactly yeah and and of course it's been a very interesting time to think about international work and what that means and how you make international work when all the borders are closed you know and even when the borders open what is it that you really want you know what's the thing that makes international work or international collaborations or transnational collaborations so exciting and how far away are we from that in the in our normal models of of making work and how can we get closer to the things that we really want I've been asking myself the same question. And particularly, what do we want from Europe and from a European identity? We reached out to author and academic Timothy Garton Ash, Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford. Timothy joined us for one of our live Dash cafes in London at the beginning of our Utopia series. I returned to ask him about a project he's since established, European Moments, which asks Europeans from across its continent and the UK to identify their formative European moments. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that project and its genesis, really, and how, how it's evolved. So there's a feeling out there that Europe has slightly lost the plot, that no one quite knows what the European Union's great project is anymore and where we're supposed to be heading. And the typical way to answer that from sort of Brussels out and sort of top down is to say, so here are the four big things that the EU is going to do and we're going to tell you de haut en bas what the great direction is. And we decided with my this wonderful team of young Europeans at Oxford to do the opposite and start by going out there and asking Europeans all over the continent, particularly young Europeans, what their Europe is. And 
we do this by asking them some very simple questions. What was your formative European moment? What was your best European moment? What was the worst European moment? And what would you like the EU to do by 2030? And it's absolutely fascinating. You will see on the website this great kaleidoscope of of European moments and perspectives. And by the way, we'd love anyone who's listening to this to come onto the website and do a little self-interview and just send it to us. Um, and, 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 and the hope is that, that out of what's initially bound to be a cacophony, we get some polyphony. There are some themes that keep recurring. And I think that's already beginning to happen, actually. We're beginning to see what Europeans really care about. But as I say, the great idea is from cacophony to polyphony and for Europeans to say themselves what they want Europe to do and to be. Do you have a sense of its potential outcome? I I think it has a value in itself because it provokes people, you know, like a piece of theatre or poetry or whatever it might be, a film, it provokes people to think about these things and, as it were, to become much more, so to speak, self-conscious Europeans, to think about what it means to be European for them and what they really care about. But also we're going to do a report later this year uh, saying what young Europeans want Europe to do, the EU specifically to do, because... There's no point in European leaders, whether in Brussels or national leaders, spending a huge amount of time doing things which people don't actually care about. So to give you an illustration, people in Brussels talk a huge amount about the institutions of the EU. And so far, our inquiries suggest that most people care very little about that. What they're interested in is what the EU delivers, what Europe does. The big things there are freedom, particularly freedom of movement. I mean, ironically enough for us Brits who've just lost it, the freedom of movement consistently scores absolutely top of the list as what people most value about Europe, the ability to travel, study, work, live in other European countries. Um, Climate change is obviously very high up. So, So, yes, the hope is that this does also feed into the way people think about about what Europe needs to do. I would definitely put freedom of movement on the list of my personal top European moments. I've always found destination lists in European train stations totally thrilling. I love the prospect of standing in a station in Central Europe and being faced with the opportunity to travel across national borders. Perhaps it's particularly enticing in the UK, where our geographic isolation makes this less possible. As Maria said, none of us have had much freedom of movement over the last 18 months. But I wondered if this heady combination of politics and pandemic in the UK had shifted Maria's understanding of her own European identity. When you're thinking about transnational and international connections and here we are on an island that is increasingly like putting up its walls, has it changed your understanding of what it means to be European? No, because my sense of being European isn't related to the UK or to the UK's politics. I'm European because I'm born and raised in Sweden and because I've spent, you know, a big part of my adulthood living in different countries. And that includes a a huge chunk of time in the UK, but it's not the only place where I feel at home. It's not the only place where I have felt at home. So 
So it, it hasn't impacted on my own inherent sense of being a European as an individual. What I think has changed uh, potentially, of course, is how, how my Europeanness is viewed by people who don't share that uh, particular way of identifying themselves. I think it's quite hard to tell, um, but I suspect that the feeling that's becoming clearer and the voices are becoming louder are the ones that are wondering what, what we're really doing in the UK. You know, why are we really there? What's the reason? Um, now, it's not so easy anymore. Or, you know, you have to have a real reason to go and you have to have a reason to stay because it's not uh, it's not as easy as just kind of going, well, I could go there, I could go to Paris or I could go to, you know, wherever. Over the last few years, I've heard so many artists born in mainland Europe and based in the UK question whether they want to remain here and why. In 2018, we ran a workshop for more than 50 international actors led by Tim Supple at the Young Vic. One of the attendees was the director and actor David Furlong, the artistic director of Exchange Theatre. David devised a monologue in the room, which he's continuing to develop. We'll play a little excerpt here and later in the podcast. Imagine, so we're in a room full of white people and we're all talking about Africa, mostly. Mostly, honestly, no, no, I think there were like maybe two or three African people of other descent. Exactly, mum, you see? So, I mean, may, maybe this is the problem in the end. And is the story of Europe the story of the white world? And so, I mean, what about people like me? Um, remind me, David, where are you from originally? I was actually born in France and then I grew up in Mauritius with my parents and then back to France. And then I moved to the UK uh, 17 years ago now. So my journey is as a European, also uh, coming from a former colony. This is me in a nutshell. And how was life for you here before things changed politically? My training was in France and in a classical theatre. Uh, but at the same time, there was something in my identity that didn't feel quite French because um, Mauritius was more recently a British colony. Uh, when I moved to the UK, it was really to embrace the language and a culture which I thought was mine, partly. So when I when I arrived in the UK, it was not very obvious for me I wasn't very aware of how actually I was put in a in a box and it was the French box because that's also a big part of me but the thing is I had I had left France because I didn't feel very French and I was also in a box in France and my work I thought was only cultural so I thought I was um, working on the matters of translations of um, bringing plays from another culture, uh, so French culture, to the UK, or uh, shedding a light uh, onto like Mauritian literature. And what shifted is that suddenly I realized, of course, all work is political, but I realized that the political situation politicized my work. So, of course, there's the structural changes, like the impossibility to, to tour, to have Erasmus um, interns, great bridges with Europe. That changed with, with Brexit. But for us, uh, at Exchange Theatre, we were an emerging company. So we didn't really have yet access to European funds. Literally, um, the day of the Brexit uh, result, the vote, uh, Exchange Theatre was nominated for the first time for an offie. And like you can imagine the the opposite signals that this, this sent on the same day you are you are told by your peers 
thank you for doing your work here and we appreciate it and at the same time the the, the same country tells you well you're not really welcome and then from then on everything is about digging into this broader thinking of the situation and of what we're doing for me brexit is much more um, than just breaking away from europe it is also the result of a long-term thinking of an empire it is a result also of colonization and the thinking of colonization it is all those things that actually the anti-woke people are now fighting in many, many different ways. So I think it, it forced us to put everything we do in this perspective um, and to locate ourselves um, in terms of our values. How would you say that it has affected the work that you've created? It forced us, and I think it's interesting that I will say that a lot, the, the work, it forced us. It wasn't something we had planned. So uh, it forced us to go slightly more radically towards the, the material we were already exploring. Um, but the, initially we were thinking it like an exchange, just like uh, something we are offering. And, and more and more, the, the, this exchange within the, the core of our work, even more central, it, it, it wasn't just about um, crossing a bridge. It was about bringing the people on that bridge with us, within that place of exchange. It's less of a, a movement towards the other to make them discover something other, but it's actually come with us on this bridge of multiplicity. So concretely, we started doing more and more bilingual works, bilingual productions, bilingual experiments. We started to um, really center our work towards people so people who are diverse within their core so people who are bilingual we have members of the company who are uh, iranian french and american and british these are the sort of people that compose the staff at exchange theater and and it's also championing these people putting their identity forward and we're trying actually to simplify the way of uh, perceiving these multifaceted uh, identities. Because of course, I mean, one of the things that where I think Exchange and Dash meet so perfectly on the bridge is that sense of, of, a, of a celebration of a kind of a multifaceted, hyphenated identity is a good thing. It makes us stronger and richer. But it's interesting to me that, that what you were just saying, which is that actually you want to make, you want to sort of simplify that as an idea. You want to make it more understandable to people. What Can you say a bit more about that? Before Brexit, we, uh, at one point, we were a resident company at the French Institute in London. And um, it could be seen as a, um, a place where French expatriated people uh, meet and, and gather around their culture. But the truth is that the young audience and even the parents are generally um, uh, people who have already uh, like a myriad family. So uh, mom is Spanish, dad is French. Uh, they speak two languages at home plus growing up in the UK. And for them, it's very simple. So when we, when we were experimenting with bilingual shows, paradoxically, it appeared very, very simple to actually do it. And, and these skills... Um, these soft skills, I guess, um, we transferred them to the work that we do also for general audience and, um, and the British public. 
obviously, David, you, you wrote to us, I can't remember how it came up, but at some point over the last couple of months, you dropped me a note and said, I developed this piece of content at one of Dash Arts's workshops about this specific issue. Um, and I was totally touched that, that you contacted us with that. Can you tell us a little bit about, about how that piece came about and what it is? And because I think it absolutely gets to the heart of some of the stuff that you're trying to, that we're talking about. In the piece that I produced, um, is literally born out of the situation because I produced this during, I guess, an hour of devising on the spot. And it was just stating the obvious. Um, I was in a room and I was the only brown man and there were other uh, maybe Asians. And we were discussing European identity. And I started to question whether Europe was the story of the white world. And of course, I don't think it is because Europe uh, has been a colonizer. I mean, the, the European countries. So, so they, they've left, left a mark everywhere. And even in, in the countries they colonized, um, there is still a, a spirit remaining from that. And I think I wanted to make a provocation um, in the room to, to change, to, to, to turn the table, to change the perspective that we were all having that was looking within and forgetting the impact that Europe had outside its walls uh, or its borders. I think because I'm an artist and because I'm an actor first, um, it wasn't a very um, intellectual process. It was really about using those tools that I know to create a, a very simple situation to expose this first to my peers. And then the response uh, in the room was slightly overwhelming, actually. There, there was one person who was British who re reacted uh, quite strongly, and I think he felt rejected and put on the spot. What was very interesting for me is that it is, it is a, it's still a piece of art. So it is meant to display slightly uh, the reasoning behind it. It is, it is meant to look at what a man of my age, a brown, could feel if he was just led by his um, emotions, I guess. Effectively, it is a monologue that you devised in the room at one of our Dash Arts workshops, processing the experience of being surrounded by a bunch of European actors and trying to question, I suppose, what it really feels like to be European if you actually, if you weren't necessarily born in the continent. It's very funny, it's very real, and it's absolutely about being in the moment and exploring your identity surrounded by a bunch of people. Would you say that I've kind of captured, ca kind of captured it in essence? That captures it perfectly, uh, Josephine. I think I, I can't say it better than you, really. <laughs> Do you feel like the process has changed your understanding of your own identity? Have things changed for you in the last five years? Yes, certainly. Um, and in a surprising way, it was about questioning my bias and everything that I did wrong before all of this. I think... The political situation is rooted in prejudice and also in ignorance of the other's difference. Yeah, I think it starts with us. And the, the, whole, the whole Brexit thing is about amnesia. It's back to fascism. You know, yesterday I feel the settled status. Do you know how it felt? like putting a yellow star on your shirt. That's how it felt. Settled status. Being registered. 
whole Europe thing is a myth. Yesterday, there was no mention of ideologies. Just a list of dates, no ideologies. So what about fascism? Oh, yeah, well, the thing is that, you know, aside from Germany and Italy, who was fascist, and occupied France, who was fascist, and, Re and Franco, who was fascist, everywhere. And I mean, that's the main ideology of the 20th century. No one talks about it. So we're building this whole story about the reconstruction of Europe built on Britain and France. This is like it's something else, like it's humanism that reconstructed Europe from the rubbles. But no, 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 no. It's fake. It's a lie. It's a story of destruction. That's what it is. That's the true narrative. Joseph Conrad, it's all in the book. Heart of Darkness, kill them all. You know, Europe is dead, mom. Huge thanks to David for sharing his work with us. It's clear that the great political turbulence of Brexit has been an inspiration as well as a destabilising force for him. It certainly motivated us at DASH to relook and reconsider the world in which we're working and our audiences for the work. I reflected on this with Maria. One of the things that I thought was beautifully interesting about Project Europa and the work that I've been doing with DASH has been that about like five years ago when we were coming to reapply for our NPO application and it was just coming after the Brexit referendum. I remember at the time having quite interesting conversations about whether we should relocate from London to the southeast. Uh, you know, would it be, you know, there are so many, you know, like here's this massive push to get the arts outside, outside London and at Dash, I mean, we're doing a big show, a couple of shows next year outside, you know, with big producing partners outside London. So we, we were already heading that direction. But I was like, you know, here is this sort of southeast of the country, which is the closest to Europe, continent wise, uh, you know, like geographically, and yet is the most, you know, actually had a really high, kind of high percentage of people who voted for Brexit in that area. And we became fascinated at it as an organisation. And we did have quite serious conversations about resettling there or having a kind of offshoot of Dash there. It was just a beautiful coincidence, I thought, that you've done, you had the same motivation for your work and, and, you, and you've settled down in you know, Margate. Are you in Margate? No, we're in Canterbury. We're, we're a resident at the Marlow in Canterbury. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And for all the reasons that you just said, really, it's a very interesting place to be. You know, it's a very interesting place where I sort of feel like the, the tensions are all playing out in a kind of microcosm of, of Kent in a really, both in the present tense and historically of course you know it is incredibly interesting and rich and complicated to look at what's happened in that same area over the last you know two three hundred years yeah. Have you had opportunities to share work locally and, and how what's the what's the response? Yeah, we have. We have. We've just finished just this weekend. We finished our first uh, project in Canterbury, which was in a, a, a sort of R&D uh, of a trilogy of work called We Are the Stories. And the, the three pieces share a couple of different things. But one of them is that they all collaborate with local migrant communities. Uh, each of the artists have been working with local migrant communities in Kent to make the work. Um, and then we had uh, some public sharings at the end of that. So we've just had the last one on Saturday and it's been really brilliant. It's been really brilliant to start that dialogue, both with local migrant community members as makers and in terms of what their stories are and what their experiences are at the present moment. Um, and also then in the meeting with the audiences and having conversations about work that is in, in progress, which isn't necessarily something that that particular audience is, is very used to being let into the process in that sense. So it's been really, really positive, actually. Maria and all at Project Europa are doing incredible work. As with David, the challenges and the critical questions, the experience of finding yourself othered by the mainstream have been a source of inspiration for her. Maria told me that the show Europeana that she'd planned to direct for the RSC in 
2020, which never opened due to the pandemic, will open in 2023, produced by her own company. I asked Timothy whether these changes and soul-searching questions were mirrored more widely in society. If you're standing slightly on the outside, which I, I believe, as you referred to, it's sort of the role of the artist and I think in some ways the role of the academic as well. Have you seen a difference over the last five years, I suppose, since in the run-up to the referendum and since then? Are you measuring that as part of your European Moments research? How do young Britons feel about Europe? As you know, I've been sort of following and writing about Europe for more than 40 years. The most passionate pro-Europeans, pro-European demonstrations... Uh, the moments when I've seen most European flags waved most emotionally have been in Kiev, in Ukraine, during the Orange Revolution, and in the second referendum demonstrations in London after the Brexit vote, when we were campaigning for a second referendum. So there's a great famous line, one of the most famous lines in Polish poetry, which goes, Lithuania, thou art like health. How much we should value you, those alone know who have lost you. You you value health most when you've lost it. And it's exactly the same with Europe. The people who most value Europe, the belonging to Europe, are those who don't yet quite belong, who would love to be in the European Union, like people in in Ukraine or Belarus today, even more um, immediately, and us who, against our will, have left it. So I think there's a much more passionate Europeanism that we've seen over the last five years in Britain, and that's expressed itself in all sorts of ways, um, including, of course, people getting second passports and you know having the citizenship of another EU country. But I think there's a, a really difficult and interesting question, which is where that goes from here. Okay, we have this strong cultural identity, we are um, deeply de- depressed and, 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 and angry to have been torn out of the European Union. But, but what do we do with that now? What do we do with that strong European identity, you know, in a world where the real politics and economics are rather of divergence than of convergence between the post-Brexit UK and the EU? What's your instinct about how that will manifest itself? The first thing to say is that history is full of surprises and no one is more surprised by them than historians. There's a fascinating, complex interplay between integration and disintegration. So the next big thing to play out is what is this Britain going to be in five or ten years' time? Are the Scots going to leave? Is Ireland effectively, step by step, going to become more united? And then further down the road, and I, I think this is a matter of, of decades, not of months or years, the big question is to the English. Because what this leaves us with is the English question. Who do the English want to be? And, you know, we are rather like, in this respect, the Russians. One of Russia's great identity problems is that for about 400 years, it's been part of a larger Russian empire. And so the national identity has got completely wrapped up in the imperial identity. And and the English, in many ways, are in a very similar position, because the last time England was just England on its own was before the union with Wales, you know, in the 16th century. 
So there's a question about the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish and how they respond to this. And then there's this enormous question of who the English, who on earth the English think they are. I agree with Timothy. It is a natural next question. In fact, it's certain to be Dash's next journey beyond eutopia. What is clear to me over the course of the series is that all of the many artists I've spoken to and heard about are determined to cling on to their multiple identities in whatever form they take. Bosnian and Yugoslav, Polish and Lithuanian, a Londoner and a Kishan, French, Mauritian, British and European. A citizen from everywhere, as opposed to, to coin the UK's former Prime Minister Theresa May, a citizen of nowhere. They all recognise the richness that these complex identities give them, often in the face of a growing push to simplify an identity into a single word or a tick box. This messy, complicated medley of multiple identities is certainly what drives all our work at Dash, and I'm grateful to all the speakers throughout the series for continuing to provide texture to this world. This autumn, we'll put out a few podcasts focusing on on behind the scenes of some of the productions that Dash Arts is currently immersed in, and we'll return in January with a new series focusing on the music of protest. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you don't miss them. Do follow the show, share, and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton, and thank you for listening. <laughs>